Thanks for joining us. My guest today is Mark Bischofsky. Mark is a respiratory therapist, a patriot, a father, a husband, and a candidate for House in the state of Minnesota. Mark, thanks so much for being here today. Well, How thank, are you? I'm doing excellent. Thanks for having me, Neil. Yeah. Um, I'm honored to be here. I have a lot of respect for you and um, looking forward to the conversation. Should be fun. So the first time we met was last summer, early August. I had just joined the race for governor. And the big issue at that time was the vaccine mandates for healthcare workers, for everybody, but predominantly for healthcare workers, they were the most draconian. And so I started my campaign by going to health freedom rallies kind of all around the, the state and found myself in Stillwater. This was one of the first ones and it was massive, way more people. I knew it should have been a problem when I, I had to drive like a half mile to park and then walk in. And uh, you were there with a microphone, a couple other folks. We had, I think, a lawyer that was t talking about legal protections. And I was just there to talk about the importance of, of health freedom and talk against the vaccine mandates. Yep. And you were there, and that was your baby. And how did you get to that point, to get to that park? Yeah, so the basically I started, I believe that was like August 12th through 13th. So we're going on 11 months of me fighting here now. So the story is... Um, and we can get into this deeper, but for 18 months, I had been kind of fighting, you know, at the hospital, resisting what was happening. I was seeing a lot of problems with, you know, the interventions they were utilizing or not utilizing. And so having, trying to have conversations with doctors, uh, um, I knew that we would be mandated eventually once this came out. And um, once the mandate actually came across to my computer saying, you know, here's the mandate, you have to take this or you cannot work here any longer. I, you know, basically, I remember the moment I was in my, my staff room and I kind of threw up my papers and I was like, I'm doing something about this. I can't just stand on the sidelines here any longer. And I know there are people on my side. And so I, being very much a novice at any kind of activism or, you know, grassroots efforts like that, I took a post-it pad, I put my phone number on it and said, I wrote text vax vaccine to this number if you're against vaccine mandates. And I, I gave it to a colleague who photoc photocopied it and gave it to another colleague. And my phone started, you know, beeping, getting yeah. a couple texts saying vaccine. So I'm capturing these phone numbers. And then I gave a couple more post-its out, but that day probably just about five that I had personally given out. But by the time um, dusk came that evening, I think I had well over a hundred text messages from just, you know, word of mouth people, you know, on our side. And the next day I went to Regions Hospital and I, I made a sign out of some tag board and a, a little stick that said, if you're against vaccine mandates, you know, come grab a flyer, you're not alone. And uh, that was difficult. I'm a pretty shy guy for the most part. And but, and I got called many names, many names, uh, words I won't use on this show. But, and you could see the people that wanted to take a flyer mm -hmm. were afraid mm -hmm. to. You could see them like their body language wanting to, you know, interested. What is this here? I don't like what's happening in, in my hospital. I don't want to take this shot. I want to keep working. Uh, but anyway, I handed out quite a few flyers and I would approach those people that I could sense their body language was fear. And I was like, you're not alone. You're not alone. Take this flyer. And from there, it blew up. I, my phone blew up. I don't think I slept for a couple of days just trying to organize these phone numbers, what to even do with them. Decided I would have a rally. 
and the rally you showed up in in Stillwater at Ottoberg Park. And I believe, you know, I, I've had estimates anywhere from like 700 to 1,000 people, and I don't know how it happened. It, it looked like that. I mean, it was, it was people ev everywhere. Yeah, it was incredible. I don't know to this day, you know, it's been a, you know, I don't know how we got that many people there because I only gathered about, at, at that point, maybe 400 phone numbers. So word of mouth beyond that. But that's when it, when it all started, and I was totally unprepared for it. You know, I had a guitar amplifier, a microphone, and that barely had the oomph to get to reach <laughs> the people. I had gotten, uh, I believe, someone from your team got a hold of me. We had you, we had Dr. Hadland, who he's the doctor who got fired from Health Partners for prescribing ivermectin, and we had um, attorney Erickson there who was uh, representing the hospital workers in, in the case, which nothing came of that, but, and then myself speaking, and you know, that moment in August just carried me here, I guess. And to be clear, the, the, you, cause you're very careful to say, as I am too, that the mandate, that was the part, that's the word, that's the operative word, is forcing people to do something. And the example that I would give on a campaign trail is like, look, I think you should eat more broccoli and that diet and exercise is really good for you, but I don't think any of those things should be mandated. You make the tool available, you give people data, you let them make an informed choice. That's the basis of medical ethics is informed consent and shared decision making. And that all just went out the window. It was, you must do this. Not, we'll give you a reasonable accommodation. Uh, you know, you need to wear an N95, you need to do something like that. Or no, it was, you must do this, or it doesn't matter how long you've been here, it doesn't matter how necessary your job is, you're gone, kick to the curb. Yesterday's heroes. And, you know, maybe people may not know exactly what a respiratory therapist does. Maybe we could take a, take a brief thing. But you were literally the pointy tip of the spear at the worst time. Like, we didn't know what this thing was in March or April or May of 2020. Right. We knew it was terrible. We knew that we couldn't trust the data that came out of China. We knew it was killing people, that it was real, that it was a virus. Uh, and then over time, it started to be like, oh, man, it's really bad if you're old, if you're ill. And it doesn't seem to be so bad if you're middle-aged. And then if you're a kid, they seem to kind of ignore it. But you didn't. There was no PPE for you. You were in the hospital, in the ICU, running vents, getting COVID sprayed all over you every day. Yeah. There was nowhere to hide, and you were there. You were the hero on the front line, like you know, nurses and, and other healthcare professionals out there. And then to just say, like, I survived all that, uh, and now you have to get this shot. No questions asked, no discussion, or you're gonna lose your job. Yeah what happened and you know it's true I worked through the basically the meat of the entire pandemic without proper protective equipment you know an N95 mask is a single-use medical device mm -hmm. which we were told to put in a paper bag and use it for a week which I'm knowing you know th this isn't gonna protect me yeah you it's know, an N N25 by yeah. Wednesday <laughs> I mean it's falling off my face you know because yeah. they degrade you know yeah. they, they literally and so I'm in these rooms aerosolized um, no you know knowing the mask long story but you know when you get fit tested for an N95 you're you know move your head side to side yep. say mm -hmm. this certain paragraph go up and down a couple times and it doesn't mim mimic a work environment mm -hmm. you're smiling you're laughing you're sweating mm -hmm. you're really bending the mask was falling off my face I'm like all right I'm gonna get this right but that's all right I signed up to do this I knew when I signed up to be a respiratory therapist that I was gonna be working with dangerous airborne illnesses mm -hmm. and uh, 
I, I cared. I, I, f I found it a challenge. Like, I want to help these people. This is, this is what, you know, I love my job. I love helping people, and I'm willing to take this risk. You know, and I, before even the data came out, I figured being healthy was going to give me an advantage. And it's never hurt anybody. Right. <laughs> so I felt like I was okay with it. But, yeah, I, I uh, worked through the whole pandemic. And, you know, I had been talking to administrators, my, my manager, through this whole thing because, you know, I knew they were going to fast-track a vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wasn't going to take a fast-tracked vaccine. Right. And so I'm telling literally the president of my hospital, like, you're going to mandate me. I'm, I'm saying this in probably, you know, June, July 2020. Is that early? No, we'll never do that to you. We'll never do that. Yeah. We'll never do it. We'll never Joe do Biden it. said the same thing. We'll never right. mandate this. But I, I knew they would. I don't know. Intuition. I just kind of knew it was coming. And then, yeah, so, you know, fast forward to, I mean, there was a huge battle that was going on between that with interventions I was, you know, trying to get from my patients. But when that mandate came across, I was like, told you so for one thing, and now I have to do something. Um, I, you know, many things in my mind at that point, loss of freedom, censorship, you know, being ostracized for a lot of things, other people, doctors, you know, not able to speak the truth. And I'm, at that point, I'm afraid for the future for my children. Sure. If it's just me and my wife, I feel like we can fend for ourselves. Maybe we move up north, go off the grid, or whatever it is, you know? Mm -hmm. But I'm, I, I was uh, afraid at that point. Like, I literally broke down uh, that day in August, like, looking at my kids, just like, I can't allow this to happen. So I'm going to do whatever it is that I can do within my power, even though I don't know what to do or how to do it. <laughs> I'm going to try this, I'll post it with a phone number. And it took off from there. Now, your organization had tons of followers. There were a few different organizations fighting different battles in Minnesota. You guys were anti mandate predominantly that was yep. your big thing um and it was a way for so many people i think to, to find each other and what's interesting i remember speaking at the capitol there's a you know health freedom rally there was you would see people who like you know wouldn't otherwise find themselves standing shoulder to shoulder like you're going to get the guys with the long rifles and you'll get the guys yep. with the trump hats but then you're other people are like why well, I, I didn't you know, I don't, I don't like that stuff, but like, you know, maybe the old hippie granola people who were like, you know, I want a choice over what happens to my body and I don't feel comfortable with a, uh, a new treatment that has no long-term or intermediate term safety data at that point. At that point, it's like, yeah, within a few weeks, you know what the rate of anaphylactics, anaphylaxis is, but no one cares about that because you right. know, it's like we can treat that, but we don't know what the intermediate term risk. How long did it take us to assess out myocarditis risk and that, you know, months and months and months well people were getting it in that time and some people may have sustained irreparable damage as a result uh, this is a reason that vaccines take 10 years to approve and you can't you can't fake that process because some of these things you you need to have you know VARES has many flaws but it does generate hypotheses you need to have control groups you need to follow people for a long period of time to be like does it increase cancer risk does it increase reduce fertility like how how can you know if there's just noise or signal within a few months you when can. Pfizer yeah so Pfizer crossed over the control groups people may not know that but that there is no longer a control group yeah. so we're left trying to put historical controls together we're left trying to say okay well unvaccinated but at this point it's 
there is no control group, and I can't believe the FDA let them have that study design. It should have been, you, know, you, you have to stay as the control group because you're the only people who are going to be able to tell us what the true rate of some of these side effects are. Um, but they got crossed over, and I think that that was on, we'll never know, but it, it was on, it's a great way to hide yeah. side effects. I mean, in the FDA, you know, I'm one that was, I've always been skeptical or cynical towards big corporations and government. And so trusting these, you know, this was something that's in my mind too. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. My children are fully vaccinated. Right. You know, I'm not. Well, they may have changed that definition, so maybe they aren't anymore because if they add COVID to that list. That they didn't get that well, yeah, and they never be, will. Um, right, they never will either. On, so, on you know, it's, it's a, you know, it's an, it's an mRNA vaccine too. It's like a vaccine they've never even. It's a new class. So, right. So as a physician, I always get weary of new classes. So I remember when, uh, you know, we were talking about some like, like psoriasis or some, some of the things that we treat and. The TNF alphas first came out and they first used them. I was like, God, this looks really good. I really like, but you know what? I can tell you every single thing that's wrong with methotrexate. There are no surprises. The drug has been around for an extremely long time and like it or not, but I, I like to be able to tell you all the pluses and the benefit and the, and the negatives. Maybe these new, this new class of medicine, but I've seen enough. I've seen thalidomide and Vioxx, uh, you know, birth defect, isotretinoin, these things that you just can't predict because they're idiosyncratic. And you need to have some um, skepticism and some wariness as a clinician to be like, never be the first, unless you're boxed into a corner, right? You know, when the shots came out, if you're 85 years old and you're really unhealthy, like, yeah. It, 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 for alpha beta, there was probably net benefit. Yeah, I mean, for, if this thing a had a fatality rate of 30, 50%. Well, then it's like, yeah, give me whatever. You know, (laughs) but, you know, I'm seeing it. I'm working with it. And, you know, kind of back to my original thought there with trusting corporations, you know, I've always been questioning these things. And I knew before this that, you know, Pfizer was fined. I think it's the largest fine in criminal justice history, 2.3 billion. I used to know the numbers. But, um, you know, that was like a decade. Maybe it wasn't. It was just like several years ago, they were fined a lot of money for... I believe the language they use is like manipulating the data, bribing doctors, mm-hmm. and the drug was Bextra. And actually, for those that may not know, so Pfizer was actually involved in a RICO case too, a racketeering, a separate. So, you know, and other drug companies, Johnson & Johnson and their baby powder, there's, they, they uncovered evidence that they, they really knew that this was causing harm to moms and babies. Um, Merck and Vioxx, they... They had some data there too. So I'm a little skeptical, you know, of what they're presenting here. But again, I think, you know, when all was said and done with me seeing, be working in a COVID unit and seeing who was vaccinated or not early on, I think there was some benefit for a small part of the population. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they should have probably, you know, targeted towards that part of the population and told us well, if you're sick, stay home. Otherwise, uh, if you're young and healthy, maybe go get it. Right. I mean, right. Well, you know, so f- like for example, the monoclonals worked well early on. They worked for you know a little bit longer than some of the the, uh, the vaccines did. Florida rolled that out like crazy, and other places were like, no, it's vaccine or bust. You're like, look, if you've got all these tools, why wouldn't you be giving fluvoxamine, ivermectin, you know, whatever you want on the outpatient basis, vitamin D. That stuff fails. Now you've got a whole list of things you can go through. You know, it's just another tool, but it was just this vaccine-only strategy. And Florida, for having as many old folks as they have, ended up middle of the pack. Yeah. A lot of vitamin D. It's interesting. But also very aggressive use of monoclonals when monoclonals worked. 
And here there was like, you had to beg somebody to get your patient access to a monoclonal. And you had to go through the Department of Health, had to raise, like, there was a period of time where like, there was enough of this stuff around. We should have been giving it to everybody who had a, a certain number of risk factors, and yet we weren't, because it, it was a cult. Complicated, jumped through a bunch of hoops, who yeah. could even figure it out. But yeah, there was so much, you know, in Palmacord, we had talked about yep. that. So that was a big one for me, so being a respiratory. So, so Palmacord is an inhaled steroid. Cortical steroid. It's used for? They use it for, you know, it's used for asthma. It's used for, you know, primarily uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, most patients. So, it, and this actually crossed my mind very, very, very early on before I even saw Dr. Bartlett's study out of Texas. But I'm like, why are we not getting any COPD? So COPD is emphysema. Um, you lose compliance in your lungs, um, mostly from smoking. But you would think that we would see a bunch of, you know. Do you think people with bad lungs would, would be, be doing bad with a lung-based disease? Right, and I was seeing nobody. And I'm like, what's the deal here? And then I did see, it, it just, it blew my mind. Not one uh, patient with COPD w was coming in critically ill with COVID. I mean, these were overweight, diabetics, mm -hmm. over 65 primarily, mm -hmm. with your little bit of an outlier here and there. But then I saw... Um, Dr. Bartlett out of Texas, because I'm digging, digging, digging just everything. I can try to find out about this because I'm a geek like that wanting to just know. And he, I saw him talking about Pomacourt and how he, there was actually prior data from the, the original SARS mm, that they'd done mm -hmm. some studies with this. And, it, you know, it, it helps with the ACE2. It blocks some, you know, IL-2 or 6. I don't remember the ILs, but those, you know, what can cause the cytokine storm. Mm -hmm. um, and then he was seeing great you know, results. And the reason he questioned even using it too is because he was seeing nobody with COPD or bad lungs that was on Pulmacort or Budesonide coming in critically ill with COVID. So it's just like two and two together, maybe this stuff does work. Right. And so... Um, and there's effectively no downside. It's old, it's cheap. Super cheap. It's safe. Um, you know, it, it's one of these drugs where it's, and the data at this point I think is unequivocal. Like you, you can't sit there and try to maintain a case that there's not a benefit to using budesonide right. inhaled in these patients who have COVID. Right. Uh, and yet, it was like pulling teeth to get this safe, effective drug into the lungs of your right. patients. Because I mean, they were given systemic steroids. Right, right. But why not hit the area? Hit, just hit the area without the collateral damage. Right. And why not push it, this is one of my big issues, is why not push this out? Like, hey, you have a bunch of risk factors. You just tested positive. I'm your primary care doc. Here's an inhaler. Go yeah. home on this instead of just go home and come in when you need a vent. Yeah, it, that, those were the things that really, you know, added to my, you know, questioning the efficacy and mostly the safety of the vaccine. Because if they're going to, you know, not allow these patients to have this, this medication, which is proven to be safe and expensive and probably helpful, what else is, where are we being misinformed elsewhere along this right. line? It just made no sense, and I saw it. I can never know for sure if it's the budesonide that helped the patients, because I was able to convince a few doctors to try it, um, not at the, the frequency and the dosage that I really wanted to try it at, but the, the patients that we used it on, I believe it worked, mm -hmm. um, but absolutely safe. 
there, I mean, the one risk factor you have with this medication is thrush, uh, a yeast infection in the mouth, if you don't rinse your mouth out after using it. I was telling them. So there's really, you know, yeah. I'll take the thrush if it's going to save that, That's right, because it, it's easy to treat. I mean, it's like $10 a month. I had a doctor that was willing to prescribe it to me um, in case I got it. $10 a month for this medication where, where remdesivir is I believe it was $500 a bag to hang it. <laughs> well, that's where you went wrong. You found a drug that worked that was too cheap. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it's sad, but that's what it seems like with these. I mean, for a long time, you know, initially it's like, yeah, Avermectin, maybe some data there, but then fluvoxamine's data, it's like multiple trials, and then everyone's in love with like Paxlovid, and you're like, no, 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 the fluvoxamine still hasn't failed yet, and this is a drug that's $10 a course. Long-term safety data is extremely well-trod for, for its antidepressant effect, and like, it's still effective, and yeah. it didn't care if you had alpha, beta, delta, early Omicron, but just, no, can't use it, and it, it, it's hard not to think that the money played a role in this at some point, um, but I don't know why you turn down drugs that are cheap and safe yeah. and effective. And then give these drugs that, you know, basically, I I'd looked pretty hard, and I don't think there was a study that showed remdesivir was worth giving. I mean, there, there right. was some, er, I think early on, if you were able to catch it like first, second day of infection, it might have had some positive effect. But when these patients are in the hospital, um, overwhelmingly uh, more harmful, I believe, mm -hmm. were, what the studies, yeah. were what the studies were even showing. But even the World Health Organization, I believe it was at some point late 2020. I don't remember when. I used to have all these numbers in my head. But they, they, they said to stop using remdesivir. But right. where I worked, they continued using it. I believe they're not anymore. But they were getting 20% you know, kickback the hospital for using it. Uh, some hospitals anyway. I know this is, this is a fact. Um, I don't know how widespread that is. But money plays a role here. Um, there was so much wrong with everything. The censorship. In, like me asking the doctors if just wanting to have the conversation, don't you feel like this, there's a chance this may have come from a lab? Mm -hmm. No, science is settled. And what is and the, again, the, what really angered me is the science is settled. It's a wild virus. It's here now. What does it matter anyway? And that just, that really upset me because I knew that was coming from this like group think right. of you're not thinking. Right. You're not thinking about what that statement means. What does it matter anyway? It matters to know where this came from so that w we can never let it happen again. If it did get, you know, come from a lab accidentally yeah. or for whatever reason, yeah. let's find out where it came from so that it never happens again. Right. Right. And yeah, and, and, and hundreds of thousands of animals have been, you know, culled or killed and they still haven't found the magic pangolin or whoever this thing came from. So it's, yeah, it, it looks, I mean, even you have the Washington Post, New York Times saying, well, yeah, there's a lot of credence to the lab leak. Of course, there was a lot of credence to it. You have a, you have BSL-4 lab and this thing happens to start in that area and you're not even going to just ask the question yeah. of, hey, don't you think maybe, now that's not going to tell you if it came out on purpose or on accident, but like, don't you think it's possible in this lab where they were studying viruses just like this and doing research that was banned under Obama's administration but still funded by Anthony Fauci anyways on the sly, don't you think maybe we should ask about why that was happening and then could this have come from there and then are there clinical consequences when you have a totally unnatural virus, right? Like is it not going to behave like you think it's going to? And this thing, 
I've never seen a disease that had a thousand X mortality difference from top to bottom age-wise. I mean, you see some, right? The very young and the very old get taken out or sometimes yeah. the very old, maybe something within a one order of magnitude, a 10 to one. But this thing was like, if you were a healthy five-year-old, you were more likely to get struck by lightning falling out of bed yeah. than die of this. And then if you were 85 and you had diabetes, and like this was this was bad. I mean, twenty percent mortality in some of those cohorts, ten percent, twenty percent. Yeah, it was really bad. So there's just this, this whole lack of uh, scientific. There, there, there is no such thing as subtle science. I mean, the, the the Catholic Church said the same thing to Galileo about a geocentric model versus a helicentric model, and it, yeah. that's the whole idea of science is that you never stop asking questions, no matter how inconvenient they are, no matter who they offend, and you try to go after truth. That truth has to be reproducible. It has to be objective. Um, and it's not dogmatic. It, this entire thing became dogma. These things can't possibly work. Well, can you show me the studies where someone tried it and they didn't work? Well, no, I can't, but it can't possibly work. Well, then don't you think it's worth asking the question? If you're a journalist, don't you think it's worth asking whether this came out of a lab? Don't you think it's worth asking physicians why they are so steadfast in their opposition to treatment XYZ, yeah. even though there's no data of those things being harmful? So it was just a failure of the entire system that, that was supposed to protect us when something like this happened. And my fear is what's going to happen the next time. Or we talked about the childhood vaccines. People are going to lose faith in the system and they're going to sit at home and die of a heart attack, something that we could have treated. One of the things that Western medicine is very good at. And they'll say, I just don't trust my doctor to do what's best for me. I don't trust anything, you know, that Western medicine has created. And like, that's a great loss. And the, the long tail of excess mortality related to that way of thinking stretch on for decades yeah and no one ever stopped to think what happens when people who are never supposed to lie like physicians and scientists you can say i don't know but don't lie and there's been so much lying about this from the fda yeah from the fauci's of the world from rank and file physicians that have just lied and, and the i think censorship yeah the censorship is you have really world-renowned doctors out there that were you know trying to speak up about this malone mccullough uh, Garrett Vanderbosch. I mean, so many, you know, that were really highly praised before this mm -hmm. that were just censored. I mean, I was asked, you know, laughed at for thinking it was from a lab. And, you know, I thought, because I had never seen anything like this, 23 years working with sick lungs and airborne illnesses like this, the flu, um, tuberculosis, things like that. But I'd never seen anything like this, where you have this like cytokine storm, the way that they presented it needed to be ventilated, the, the bilateral whiteout on the chest film, the loss of taste and smell, um, while still being able to breathe through your nose. So mm -hmm. some people say, I've right. lost my, my taste and smell before, but you weren't able to breathe through your nose at that point. Right. You know, aroma right. is lost when you cannot draw right. air. Or someone broke your nose. Yeah, you would not, not have sense or smell, but salt, you can also breathe. sugar, yeah. you're going to taste, but you're not yeah. going to get any ar aromatic flavors. And these people, you know, it was in, in the clotting, the microclotting, mm -hmm. just like nothing about it seemed natural to me. And I'm no expert in what kind of a, what a virus would look like when it comes from a lab, but it just knowing there was the lab there, the way they were pounding down the idea that it could have come from a lab right. and seeing how unique it is. You got deplatformed if you even suggested, right. like, we should look at this. Yeah. No, settled science. Careers ended over it. Yeah. Some. Yeah. yeah, careers ended over a lot of things like that. It's so just bizarre, everything. So COVID obviously is something that we could talk about for a very long time. And I think some people have done a really good job of trying to dig into that. So there's a book called Virus that I was just looking at reading, Alex Berenson's book 
on her, um, and you know many people in this space who who've tried to go back and write a kind of a real time modern history of kind of what's gone wrong with this. So that's what brought you into this, right? So you ended up losing your job, starting an organization that would fight for for health freedom um, and for this information to get out there. And then you just decided, you're like, you started to look around at, so not just this issue, but all these other issues. What, what happened to our freedom after 9-11? What's happened to our state budgets? What's happening in our schools? What's happening in the most vulnerable neighborhoods in Minneapolis and St. Paul with crime? Who is responsible for the failures in our country and the direction that our country is going, which I don't think anyone, left, right, or center, is going to look at and be like, we're better off than we were 20 years ago or four yeah, years ago. absolutely not. I can't think of anyone who would possibly think that. Right. Yeah, so it really opened my eyes to everything. I mean, yeah, I would, I would say medical freedom is what, what thrust me into this, but my eyes have been open to so much, you know, the economy, lockdowns, you know, played a huge role in where we are now economically. Um, all the money they were giving out to people who didn't need it, printing. I believe there's a st statistic somewhere around about one-fifth of all the dollars ever created in this country. It's were getting created. closer to 30%. So on the campaign trail, I used to say one in four, one in five dollars, then it became closer to one in four. But yeah, it's all, it, it, the combination of uh, quantitative easing, straight money printing, economic stimulus, um, it, it's incredible, right? So if you're fixed income, that that's, you know, the Putin price hike, this myth that the, the Biden administration and Tim Walls love to talk about, uh, but ignoring the fact that the Fed has just devalued everyone's currency by at least 20% and then wondering why CPI yeah. is printing at 9.1% in, in reality is actually somewhere in the middle double digits. Um, that's being felt in every household around the state. And it's, I mean, you've, you've knocked thousands of doors probably by this point. Yeah. What, are you, what are you hearing when you talk to people? Pretty much across the board, um, inflate, economy, inflation, it's killing me. And a pretty big percentage of my district is of retirement age, so that's a fixed income for most of these folks. Um, yeah, that and crime, but yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm focusing mostly on those who have a high propensity to vote in a, in a primary, so those folks are, you know, a little more engaged than your average voter, but they, they're, some of them are aware of the surplus we have, um, they want their money back, but pretty, now, pretty much the economy is eight out of 10 of the doors, that's the top issue. So if you're on a fixed income, you're on Social Security, uh, that was already a tax taken out of your paycheck to pay into that. In Minnesota, we're one of only a handful of states where you still get taxed on that income. And this is, again, not a partisan issue, right? I mean, uh, there are people who vote left and vote right uh, that are elderly fixed income who would love to see that double tax go away. We had a massive, nearly $12 billion surplus. Why couldn't we get this done in St. Paul, where we could, let, let's agree on one thing, we can all agree that Social Security double tax needs to end, it's affecting people right now. Those are the people who need to be able to buy gas, buy food, pay their electricity bills. Why couldn't it get done? Yeah, and then wasn't it somewhere over 4,000 per taxpayer? That, that's the amount that the surplus was, it was massive. Right. It so was it would, I mean, that makes a difference. Basis. That right. makes, that right now is a tangible tool to help people get through what we're dealing with. Well, the average household, they say, is uh, five to 6,000 in inflation-related expenses. So the surplus could have wiped that out. And I can't think of anything that should be more bipartisan than helping people get through one of the most challenging economic times that I've seen and one that's likely to get worse. Yeah. But they couldn't manage to get it done. Um, everyone had a, a different way they wanted to spend the money. 
Very few people wanted to give it back. Walls talks about giving some small amount of it back, but then not giving it back evenly across the board and having limits on who can get what and people yeah. who didn't pay in get it. So what do you think about that Social Security taxation? The that? taxation of Social Security benefits needs to be abolished, period. And we have the resources to do it now with yeah. the surplus that we'll mostly carry forward. Absolutely. So what other legislative priorities would you, would you make when you're elected? I think um, I want to re represent the people. I want to be their voice. So what I'm hearing is, you know, taxes are too high across the board. I think with this surplus being $12 billion, I believe our income tax revenue from individuals is just a couple billion over that 12, which tells me we could cut income taxes drastically. Mm -hmm. um, might even argue you could get rid of the income tax in Minnesota like many other states do and, and uh, force the government to be more efficient and stop some of the reckless spending. Yep. So that I think um, is, those are the big things. Cause I do, I wanna be a voice for the people. I mean, I'm a proponent for, you know, life. I, I want, you know, I think uh, abortion, you know, and what I'm doing with that issue is I meet people at the door, even on, on the Republican side who are kind of in the middle there, but can we just at least agree that it shouldn't be state funded mm -hmm. and it shouldn't be used for birth control? Mm -hmm. And everyone agrees with that. Well, the other thing that people agree on overwhelmingly is that third trimester abortions are, you, you talk to, to hardcore Democrats who are like, no, it's a woman's right to choose. And you're like, well, what about killing a nine month old? They're like, oh, that's no, 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 no. That, that's not even legal. You're like, oh, that's actually, honey, that's become your party platform. Yeah. And it's not Clinton's, you know, what was it, safe, rare, and whatever it was. It has become full bore all nine months. And the overwhelming majority of, of Americans and Minnesotans look at that and they're like, I, I don't agree with that. Um, and that's what's happened to the Democratic Party. It's become so radical. It's not your mom or dad or grandpa's Democrat party. I mean, you know, John F. Kennedy was a Democrat. Now he would be pretty far right. If yeah. you go back and listen to his inauguration speech, it would sound like a Republican gave it. Yeah. So that's why sometimes these words end up losing their, their value. They lose their meaning, and we end up siloed and tribal about it. But you know, Americans should care about liberty, freedom, prosperity. I mean, life is a big issue for the two of us. If you don't have that, then what do the rest of them matter? Right. Um, but the, you know, the, the mainstream media, the social media, this, this beast that we've created that just drives us apart from our neighbors and makes us incapable of seeing the other person as, you know, a person who's trying to make their way through life, be a good person, be a good father, just make ends meet, pay rent food on the table um, but on a lot of these issues I don't really think there's a lot of daylight there's a lot less daylight than than they'd have us believe yeah I mean the media is dividing us social media and mass media you're vaccinated you're not you know the race issues the gender issues they're dividing us and um, communities are getting severed and uh, you know I one of my statements to, to people is, just generically speaking, I believe that our world should grow from the community out, mm. where we trust one another, we know one another, we work together to make a better neighborhood, community, instead of just a big blanket of government down. Because um, not every you know, concept is gonna work in every community. But you know, during, back a little bit to the pandemic, the fear that was being disseminated um, and the division 
just really, I think, like I said, it severed these communities. And I know families that, you know, won't talk to each other anymore. Many friendships. I have one that is um, lost, unfortunately. And it's, it's, it's terrible, it's, you know. It really is. And, you know, it's funny to me as, as someone that's conservative how they seem to go in one direction. Like I have plenty of people that I'm friends with that are liberal that uh, can't have a conservative friend. And yet I have friends that I disagree with. But, like, I still love them. And yeah. you still have discussions with them. You, can, you, you try to, to win them over. And you say, hey, you know what, there's some stuff we're just not going to agree on. But, like, you're still a good person. I don't vilify you. I don't think you're bad. But the... the it seems almost always that it's been I, this family member X voted for Trump and didn't get the vaccine, so I cut him out of the family. Right. Why did you choose to do that? Why didn't you just leave him alone? Media. I, I really do think that it plays such a big role in, in how people message, message themselves is they're getting these talking points from the media instead of, like, actually talking amongst each other. I mean, example, I have a neighbor who's got a a Biden-Harris sign leaning mm-hmm. against her garage. Um, she was at the parade yesterday holding Bashevsky signs. She's a, a liberal, but she knows me. Right. You know, and she was holding signs, family values, because she knows that I care. I mean, that my top priority is being a great dad. And she just, she knows it. She sees me around her kids. And, and that's, that's what's missing here, is people talking to one another. And I, there's, I, is the division intentional? I don't know. But I do believe the media, social media, the toxicity of that mm-hmm. is, is harmful to our society. And, you know, their technology and all this stuff is, is useful for a lot of things. But I don't have the answer to how you fix that either. Yeah, and you wonder if some generation of kids is just going to end up looking at that and being like, I don't want a part of that. Give me a dumb phone, Dad. Because, you know, cell phones are great. Like, you, you need a ride or something, yeah. like a basic phone. Like, I need to call for help. I don't feel safe. Uh, or listen to my tunes, or I need to know where I'm going. So there's good parts to that. To just be a total Luddite and say there's no benefit to that. No, now you can call 911, you can get a ride, you can do whatever you need. But the downsides that come on that device, I mean, this is something I think our kids are relatively similar ages. Right? My oldest is nine, and so we talk about the phone all the time. And I'm like, this, just, this is like a tool. I mean, it's like a gun. It can do good things, it can do bad things. Most people use this phone for not so good things, be very careful about it. And I think she's much more skeptical when she sees it. She sees her friends interact with it, and so it's a lot more questions. And ultimately, as a parent, you know that you have less control than you think, and so you just hope to have these conversations and make them think, and at some point she's gonna have to make that decision when she's older on her own, how she wants to interact with it, and if she wants to take just the good parts of it, um, or if she wants to, you know, have it be a big deal, but I, I think that's, to me, the greatest challenge of raising a kid it is, is those, those devices and, and social media. Yeah, I call, we call, my, my 10-year-old has a, a phone he'll use occasionally for games. So I try mm-hmm. to use mostly education, but we limit it. But, you know, in my little, my 7-year-olds have Kindles, which, again, we started, you know, using them to teach them to read and stuff like that. But I regret it. But now once you, you know, open, let the cat out of the bag, we, we call them the brain fryer. Yeah, yeah. That's what I call it. You, you frying your brain right now? Like, <laughs> that's long enough. Um, 
but you're right. I mean, they're useful. I love the map on my phone. I love uh, when I have time to golf, which is not anymore. But you know, the the distance uh -huh. tool. You know, there's there's so much good. The flashlight. That's like one of the best. Yeah. And I the mean, camera. You've got this amazing yeah, camera in your pocket. So much yeah. good about it, but just the data collection point of yeah. it. What what they're doing to manipulate me to which I feel like I'm not falling for it, but it hears you, you know? Yeah. You could be talking about something and then two minutes later, there's an ad for it. Dude, it's freaky. On your phone. It's I mean, like, I don't know if Androids are worse at this, but my friends that have Androids are like, yeah, literally like whatever we talked about. Oh like yeah, it's it just, right there. It starts showing you ads for that. I have an Android and it does it. That's, we, it's terrifying. Now, again, that's not, that's not a partisan thing. I don't think anyone likes that, that the left, right, or center, that that is reality. Um, and you, you can't even like look at what data they have on you and like it's so hard to lock down. So again, the, the free market should provide and so it's interesting to see Android and Apple uh, diverge on this, right? Apple said we will be the privacy phone now, okay, right, the, take it, never take anything at face value, but they certainly have seemed to say that's a key differentiator for us in the marketplace than Android and I could yeah. see even a phone company further coming in and saying we're gonna lock down even more but then the revenue side of it has to make sense because there's so much money to be made from yeah. aggregating that data and selling it to advertisers that, you know, even like uh, DuckDuckGo got in big trouble, you know, a couple months ago when they were selling data to uh, Bing. Now it wasn't, their, you know, their argument was, well, it was, uh, you know, de-identified, it wasn't that, but it was in aggregate and this, and you're like, look, your whole deal was supposed to be privacy and you're gonna sell that out for something yeah. because there was too much money on the table. Right, and I'm a free market guy, so I don't know, you know, I don't have the answer to how you fix that either. But, uh, you know, the free market should hopefully provide an option where you can have more security. Yeah, or um, people will opt privacy. out. You see, you see this, I mean, it's, it, it, I'd say it's still fringe, but people go into dumb phones our age that are just like, screw this. Like, I don't yeah. want this thing in my life. Like, it's, it's tempting. ruining it. Yeah. I mean, if I wasn't running a campaign right now, I may. But oh, it's the I worst in like the campaign. I mean, I've talked about it. The issue is, and there's a dumb phone. Like, I want to be able to, uh, like, I really like to be able to listen to some music. I need to be able to get maps. Yeah. And that flashlight, which is really you handy. Got to be able to but access then, your email and messaging. Right. So that then then it's like, oh, now like now what have I done? Like, I basically made like an iPhone minus social media. So I just pull all the social media off my phone. So even when I ran, I never had social media. Um, because I was a social media junkie for a while, a few years ago, and it was bad. And you're sitting there, and your kids are like, oh, Dad's just on his phone. And you look around, and you're like, what am I, what am I doing? I can't do this. So yeah. Yeah, even during the campaign, there was never social media on my phone. I actually got rid of my Facebook until, um, until I started Stop the Mandate. I had given it up because I just knew it was just not good. My kids would be, like you said, you right. know, trying to get my attention, and here I am just frying my brain like I told right. them. Like, no. I need to get rid of this. It's more or less toxic anyway. It shows people at their 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 highest moments. You know, mm -hmm. it's like right. you, you're going to tend to either feel like, oh, I wish I was doing that, or they're on a vacation, and yep. you know, it's just a lot of it isn't good. So I'd gotten rid of it, but then I kind of had to. You know, when you're starting a grassroots movement, you have to be able to connect with people. So and see, that's one benefit of social media, right? Is bringing that group of people together. Think of how hard that would have been to do. Impossible because Impossible. the mass media wasn't helping me. No. And even like Scott Jensen, right? I mean, he built his entire base, his fundraising, all that stuff through social media on the COVID thing. So, yeah, I mean, you have to approach it with some nuance. I think it's the, the, the biggest issue is this, um, you know, the, the 
pitting us against one another as a way to get more clicks. That to me seems like the, the single most pernicious yeah. piece of that. Giving uh, Bears fans a room to be Bears fans in, like that's fine. Like that's what's supposed to be like people with shared interests. But like using this as a way to drive you away from your neighbor with whom you agree on 95% of stuff and who's willing to hold a banner at your parade because they know you're a good guy, it never lets you get to that point. Like it's, it's very hard to hate somebody you've had beers and dinner with. Right. And social media makes it easy to just be like just such a jerk online yeah. things you would never say to a person to their face yeah and get away with it it really is truly toxic it's unfortunate but yeah other issues i'm hearing on the trail you know a, a crime uh and for myself having children is the uh parent, parent parental choice in schools is a big is a big thing for me we've chosen to homeschool our kids now. okay when, was that always? They've always no, been homeschooled? No, it was uh, this, when the mask mandate for the kids, they wouldn't give it up. So, you know, everyone was at home, more or less, mm -hmm. in front of a computer for eight hours, which I was against that 100%. So, yeah, I, I went to school board meetings and, and tried. You know, I'm a professional mask fit tester there who you actually yeah. tested the surgical masks and cotton masks. And surgical masks would block a few particles because we had a particle generator in this room viral sized particles floating everywhere and they just they the cotton masks were completely useless probably dangerous because it's just a petri dish in front of your face right. rebreathe re you know deep breathe some of these virons so after trying to get the mask mandate you know stopped at our school unsuccessfully the last meeting I was at is, well, if you vote to mandate my children, they won't be showing up at school tomorrow. And I turned around and faced the audience. was like, let's form a co-op. Let's work together here. You know, because most wow. parents are against it. Yes. Most parents were against that. But I think most families don't, you know, have, you know, we're lucky. My, my wife and I at that time, now I'm not working, but worked opposite schedules. We were able to have one of us home, not have to pay a bunch of daycare, all that. But. I believe our, our education system needs a complete overhaul. We're not teaching our kids to read. The reading proficiency continues to drop while we continue to throw more money at it. And we're teaching them things um, that shouldn't be probably taught in schools with the CRT and especially at the early age, the gender, mm -hmm. the gender stuff. Right. Right. You know, and this, this is all new knowledge to me yeah. after, you know, I wasn't, you know, Shame on me, but wasn't paying that close of attention until this whole pandemic kind of really opened my eyes up to so much that's wrong. Yeah, the schools, I think, for a lot of parents, when they started opening those book bags and seeing what was taught on those screens, one, they're like, uh, how are you doing eight hours of this every day? Like, my, like, no wonder my kids, no wonder our test scores are failing. Like, not, they're not learning anything. Um, but two, the indoctrination. I mean, I remember, so I went to public school in the suburb of Chicago, and in fifth grade, that was like the sex ed video. And it was like the driest thing. Like, this is a penis, this is a vagina, this is how you make a baby. And to watch that video, which was none of the, the ideological stuff, none of the trans stuff, it was really like, these are your parts, this is how they function. Yep. Um, your parents had to go watch the screening. They had to sign off on it. So if they didn't go, your kid couldn't watch it. And if they went and didn't sign the permission slip, your kid couldn't watch it. So just think of, in the span of that was, you know, the mid, mid to late, late 80s, right, 1990, to now, how far that's gone. 
The teachers seem to think they know more than the parents. They seem to have an agenda that they're fully willing to push. And they're unwilling to even show you what they're going to teach, right? So how controversial is it to just put the curriculum up there, let parents opt in or opt out? Like, I think in middle school you should read Huck Finn. But I can understand why people might look at a book like Huck Finn and, and be like, you know what, it's a different time. I don't want my kid to read it. Great. Uh, I want my kids to read it. You don't want your kids to read it. If it's on the curriculum, you can ask the teacher for alternative assignment. Yeah. So it works both ways, even if there's things where I think that's great for that kid. Or a lot of it is not just uh, that the answer is no. The answer is just not now. You know, maybe you're not ready for a graphic novel like Mouse, when, or just like you couldn't, wouldn't watch Schindler's List when you're in fifth grade. Mm -hmm. But in high school, maybe you're ready for it. Your junior, senior year, watch, take an AP history course. Yeah. And th it, to me, it doesn't seem at all controversial that the parents should know what is happening. They have the ability to ask for alternative assignment if they don't like what, what's being taught. And yet, somehow, for that crazy viewpoint, you know, the left loves to say, like, oh, you guys are banning books. Well, you guys are the ones trying to ban Huck Finn and the other greats of Western literature because apparently they're misogynistic or X, Y, Z thing wrong with them. And you're instead putting in like books that feed gender dysphoria, books that um, have no biological truth to them but are passed off as being somehow pseudoscientific. So no, we're not the book banners. You guys are the book banners. And we just want parents to be able to decide if those yeah. books are things we want our kids to read. Yeah, transparency. I know Iowa passed a bill to um, all curriculum needs to be posted for the parents to you know view it, it, who can agree to that i mean right. a lot of parents probably may, unfortunately not all the parents pay close attention and are mm -hmm. going to monitor anyway but, but if then you that's want on to, them. right if right. you if you want to it's there for you yeah it's you know i have a 10 year old and seven year old twin boys my 10 year old um we haven't had the conversation yet you know yeah. i think you know when he i'll know when he's ready to right. have this conversation about how a baby's made it. And I think, he, you know, he knows right. now right. Um, just from being intuitive, being a smart <laughs> kid. But to, to send home a letter to, like, some of these school districts are doing, what gender were you assigned at birth? Yeah. What gender do you feel like you are now? No. Right. No. Not at any point in the education process should the school district be asking the kids this, I don't care. Because it's wholly irrelevant right. to learning, reading, writing, arithmetic. Yeah, That's just, your job. It makes no sense. And then to do it to a, a fourth or fifth grader, and in some of these, I don't know if you've seen Whose Children Are They, this mm -hmm. documentary. Some of these, I don't believe this is happening in Minnesota, but some of these really progressive states, like they're having coming out parties for, for like kindergartners. Yeah. Surprise, yeah. you know, J John's in the back room. He's got a surprise for you today. He's going to come out and he comes out in a dress and one of the stories related to this was one of the kids that was in this class went home a girl uh, got out of the bathtub and her hair was like slicked back and she's like oh my god I turned into a boy you know so very um, sensitive on how these kids might see this stuff mm -hmm. not happening with my kids so we're homeschooling I'm so grateful anyway kids grow up so fast I want them to stop growing. I want them to be my little boys be kids forever. Until they're ready to start to transition to be an adult, yeah. right? It has to happen at some point, and every kid's different. Every family's different. Um, so school choice is one of those things where, you know, we're surrounded by states, like many issues, that are moving ahead of us. And uh, the Republicans are not powerless in this state. Why aren't we passing these things through the Senate? 
Um, you know, like, yeah, we can't control what the governor will or won't sign until hopefully it's Scott, and then hopefully Scott does the right thing. But we can advance this legislation. We can build coalitions of parents who want to save public schooling. Like, you know, look, I love homeschool. Our kids go to private school. We pulled them out. But, like, that's not for everybody, right? Right. We need to have We good need to schools. have good public schools. And those public schools need to have transparent curriculum. They need to be graduating kids who actually are learning things that are ready to enter the workforce or ready to go on to higher education. Um, and they're not, they're failing in every possible way. And the answer from all the politicians in St. Paul is throw more money at the problem. I wish it was that easy because the amount of money that we have squandered on our public education system over the last 50 years has yielded results where we are getting our butts kicked by every developed country in the world. And if you want to talk about being able to, com to compete uh, geopolitically, you know, in China in fifth grade, you're learning the basics of calculus, which is about when you should be learning the basics of calculus. And what are we doing in fifth grade? Asking what gender you are? Are you yeah. kidding me? Who's going to win when we get into a shooting war with those guys? We will not. Yeah, so public schools, you know, so I am, we are homeschooling, but my wife and I are not wealthy. We can't afford where we'd like to send them. Mm -hmm. So I want, it's a huge goal of mine, is to be able to send them to school, you know, so that, you know, I would like to, I'm gonna get a job eventually again and uh, form a new career, but so it's not like I don't care about having good public mm -hmm. schools because I'm homeschooling. I would like to be able to have that option to send them there. Um, the money, should it follow the student? Maybe, if I had that. Uh, they'd be going to Liberty Classical Academy or somewhere else. I mean, we do a home, homeschool co-op once a week. It's expensive, so not everyone can do this. Right. And this competition, it would immediately change. If I got every dollar that was going for my child, if I got that to use how I wanted to use for their education, the public schools would change immediately. For the better. Right. For the better. Right. They, there's, there'd be competition, free market competition. That's right. When there's a risk of losing your dollars you're going to be forced to actually deliver results that are what parents are looking for. And the parents and families in the poorest neighborhoods have the worst schools. So kids who are already starting disadvantaged are getting destroyed by a system where there's nothing. And these are the kids who are cast crudely aside by teachers unions hell-bent on arguing for more pay or that somehow their job was, your job was not more risky as a teacher than your job or my job. We had nowhere to run. Okay, your job as a teacher is to teach those kids. They're your kids. And if that means some tiny increased risk, I'm aware of any teacher who actually died from getting COVID from kids because they clobber the virus. Like they don't, they don't, kids were never a vector of disease for this. Right. They could get it and pass it, but barely did. They should have been in person from the beginning in the states that, uh, that did that or counties within states where the natural experiment was done no increased rate of COVID in those kids right. or in the teachers, and they are less far behind. Um, but like in North Minneapolis, those kids have fallen, they were barely hanging on with a fingernail, and now they've been kicked off. And the crime spree, the being lost forever from employment opportunities, they'll never claw their way back onto there. And that is a great tragedy. And to me, you know, as, as conservatives, that's extraordinarily tragic to us. It doesn't seem like it's at all to the Democrat establishment who seem to be com perfectly content with kowtowing to the teachers' unions at the expense of those kids. So, you know, education is, I think, where, where this country started to go wrong a long time ago, and we need to double yeah. down on getting back to basic civics and basic education, getting kids um, ready to, to enter life and be 
be productive members of society. Right. Yeah. Teach them the Constitution, too, would be a good idea. Oh, man, yeah. If you say you like the Constitution, now you're, like, super, super radical. Yeah. Like, that thing was written by a bunch of racists. And you're like, why don't you understand? Like, go read the Federalist Papers and come back to me when you have a conversation yeah. about how difficult it was to hammer out that in an environment where there was slavery and you're trying to keep the union together. I mean, to me, the promise of America is the Declaration of Independence. And the Constitution, at the time it was ratified and constructed, was the compromise to give us a shot at achieving the very hoity-toity vision of the Declaration of Independence. And that's what America gets towards closer to every day. I mean, the idea that you know women couldn't vote at some point seems bizarre yeah, to me. Right. The idea that we didn't have equality of the races seems bizarre to me, although some people want to go back to uh, judging people based on the color of their skin, not the content of their character. Right. Um, but America, as it existed, was never the goal. It was the promise of what America could be. And every year, America backslides sometimes, but moves in the longer march inexorably towards freedom, liberty, life, prosperity, those things that make America truly without peer in the world. And that's why it's so important that we have patriots like you that are running to get America back to that. These career politicians have done so much damage over such a long period of time on both sides of the aisle that the people need to get back in charge of this country, which is how it was constructed from its beginning. And I think if we start to make some baby steps towards that with your election, with the election of some other fantastic people we have running in the state, out of the state, I th I'm, a, I'm a long-term optimist, but I think we have some bumps. Yeah, I'm hopeful, otherwise I wouldn't be doing this. You know, because it's, uh, you know well how much time it takes from your family, it, it consumes you. Yeah. It's, a, it's an emotional roller coaster ride. Um, some people are not nice to you occasionally, <laughs> <laughs> just to put it lightly. Um, you find out, you know, I, when I was asked to run, I'm like, no way, politics yeah. is corrupt. Like, right. I want nothing to do with that grease pit. But they w that's how they want you to think. Yeah. They want you to not, they don't want ordinary people in there. It's a club, mm -hmm. and you're not in it. It's a George Carlin um, if you ever watched Carlin, he's very, you know, profane, but mm -hmm. it's, it's true. And, and I'm finding that out right now as I, as I do this, you know. So I was endorsed with 82% of the vote. On the first ballot. First ballot. And so for those that don't know, there's these endorsing conventions. Minnesota's an endorsement state. We have endorsing conventions. And when was that? March? God, it's all traumatic it's to me now. Yeah, it's like PTSD suppressed by April. <laughs> I believe so. I've lost track. <laughs> so, so you were endorsed by the widest margin I've seen in a contested race on the first ballot. Now, sometimes these things drag on for a while, but the first ballot crushed your, your opponent. So now you are the Minnesota GOP endorsed candidate, and yet you have a primary opponent. Yeah, because I, I'm, I'm, I'm endorsed by people, mm -hmm. the grassroots, the, the wave of energy that is hopefully, hopefully gonna save this country has endorsed me because they know and I believe I've put my money where my mouth is. You know, I have sacrificed a lot, a career. So I should clarify, I did resign my position um, based on principle mm -hmm. because I had told them, if you do this to me, mm -hmm. I won't play your games. I'm not going to jump through these crazy hoops. I will, I will find something else. And, and I was telling other people at rallies, please do not comply. This is how we stop this. So I felt like I had to do what I was telling others to do. 
So I may not have a career anymore in healthcare. Um, so I have sacrificed a lot in you know, homeschooling, a lot of my own time and dollars. And I, I, I think that that just, you know, and I tell people, I'm just a regular, a regular person, and I don't claim to have all the answers. And uh, I'm not angry. People, that's what my opponent says at the door to people. He's an angry guy. I'm not angry. I mean, yeah, I mean, aren't you angry too? I mean, to a certain point. Oh, I'm upset about where my country and my state are going. Right, and yeah. but I'm more compassionate, definitely. And I think that just it rang true to the delegates. Like, this guy's for real. He, he really wants to be our voice, and he'd rather, you know, be himself and lose than, than win and be co-opted. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, I'm truly grassroots, boots to the ground. But that makes you dangerous because you are willing to actually stand for principles and not for some party apparatus or apparatchik or party leadership or whatever it is that's going to try to control you. You're going to stand for the Constitution and freedom and Minnesotans. And that's, that, well, that's the most dangerous thing if you're a politician because you, you can't be bought. Right. I can't be bought either. Someone say, well, you can, you can. There's always something. What about a gun to your kid's head? <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah okay, probably. now you're talking. This. I maybe have to bend there, but there's no amount of money. That, that's right. There's no amount of money or any material thing because I've always been. I say it at the door, too. Give me a tent and a fishing pole and my family. I'm good forever. I do not need much. Maybe a paddleboard. <laughs> but, no, I don't need much. I, I just i am not one that I believe our desires for things um it's kind of part of how america's gone wrong i think to a certain degree i'm all for you know opportunity and doing well and it's what makes america great too but i think too many of us get lost in this what is the american dream it's it's not necessarily a yacht and two mm -hmm. beach homes. there's not one dream it's 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 independence mm -hmm. it's the opportunity mm -hmm. for prosperity and freedom and I had that. I was living the American dream. I mean, just the happiest guy, just wanting to just be with my kids all the time. I would upset my friends because I wasn't going to get in a softball league or a trap shoot league or anything. I just wanted to rush home and be with my kids. I was living the American dream. I loved my job. I love my wife. I love my kids. But now I'm living the American necessity. It's, you know, it's, and it says in the, in the declaration you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, so on, and then it goes on. I don't remember verbatim, but when any government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right, the duty of the people to mm -hmm. alter or abolish it. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we need to alter our government. I agree with that. We need good people like you that are running. So I know you've got a kid's game to get to. I can't Coach, wait. Those it's, kids it's are number my, one. It's my relief. It's the last practice of the year, and I'll tell you, it's bad news bears. <laughs> <laughs> Ten-year-olds, you know. Um, they're getting better with every game, though. Um, but, yeah, it's it's really I, – I, I live for it right now because you know what, what it's like on the campaign trail yep. all day long. You're thinking, I am literally dreaming which, which doors – I'm not kidding you. My <laughs> dreams are which doors am I knocking, yard signs, which, you know, oh, it's, it's all campaign. So it's, people that want to help you, they want to volunteer for you, they want to write you a $1,000 check, you're going to need help to, uh, to win your primary, which I think you're going to do handedly, but I know you're not taking that for granted. But then you need to win in the general. How can they get in contact with you? How can they support your campaign? So mark4mnhouse.com, so it's M-A-R-K-F-O-R-M-N-H-O-U-S-E, or you can use mark, the numeral four, so I got both domain, 
domain names there. Mark4MNHouse.com. You can click Stand with Mark, and that will bring you to a page where you can sign up, give email, all your information, um, or Mark4MNHouse at gmail.com. And yeah, my campaign is completely grassroots. I have, and I am so humbled and honored. I mean, to be in your presence, to be doing these things, to have 70 people on my volunteer list or more and having too many people to walk in parades and no issue raising money so far. I shouldn't say that because I, I do need more, especially when it comes time for general. But I am so blessed and I really, truly feel like God and the people have carried me through this thing. And that's why I keep going. I, I, I feel like people, my kids especially, but it's a team effort. It's our campaign. I, I never say this is my campaign. We're in this together, and please help. Please join us. And whether it's making phone calls, knocking doors, um, helping volunteer, making flyers, or whatever it is, whatever ex your, your expertise or level of comfort is, I want your help. This is a team effort, and I will always be your voice. Mark, thank you for being here. I know there's a lot of time, and uh, I look forward to chatting again with you after you're endorsed or after you win your primary and then again this fall uh, and then maybe this winter after you're elected and um, thank you again i know there's a ton of stuff we wanted to cover diet and nutrition we both have a lot to say Great about that we have a lot to say about health care versus medicine so we'll get get to all that stuff in the future but thank you again for taking time today Absolutely. i appreciate it thank you so cool. much neil appreciate thanks it.